Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, and welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. I can't believe this is our last month of season two. How is it the end of 2022 already? We've covered so many topics, and I don't know about you. Has it been a rough year emotionally and mentally for you? It has been for me. This has been, I think, the year of reckoning since the pandemic. I kept waiting for 2020 to be difficult, and it wasn't. I actually really enjoyed getting to kind of become a little turtle, and I enjoyed getting to sit with my books and read. And there's definitely an extroverted part of me that kind of just started hibernating and went a little dormant because I'm an ambivert, and which is probably why I'm sitting in my closet right now, like talking to myself. I love people, and we're going to see more of that. My extrovert wants to come out to play next year a little bit more. I love people, but man, I really did enjoy my break and just getting to kind of like turn into myself a little bit. I think it permanently changed me, to be really honest. I think I tended to be more extroverted and kind of suppressed my introvert, and I actually think my introvert is more dominant than my extrovert now. And it gave me time to like sit with that part of myself, figure out what her needs were, and to honor those more, which has been really wonderful and positive. But that was all 2020. And 2021, I think we all got a little bit fatigued. Um, and we had to start peopling again. And that was really awkward and weird. I don't know if you had any weird, awkward exchanges with friends like in public when we started going public again, but I feel like I started processing the trauma of the pandemic. And I think there was trauma for many of us, just the the long-term uncertainty, the long-term feelings of powerlessness, the long-term feelings of isolation. I think it's negatively impacted many of us. Uh, with our mental health. And I know that, you know, working through that with my kids and with myself and even with my husband, we've all kind of felt those effects this year. So this has been a really interesting year. And I don't know if you can relate, but I feel like I'm coming out of the woods now, like finally in the last like week. But yeah, it's felt like a, a whole year of putting out fires And like sitting with myself and working through and healing wounds that kind of came from that time. So very strange learning to connect with people again and um, allowing myself to kind of shake off the trauma that came from those two years of being isolated and getting out of routines of like going to the gym and socializing with people on a regular basis. So 
yeah, I am looking forward to 2023. I think it's going to be amazing. But for this last month, I'm really excited about our topics. We are going to be talking about fragile femininity, fragile masculinity, and today we're going to be talking about learned voicelessness or self-silencing is another word that it's called. And these three episodes are coming from a question asked by Genevieve over on the Emancipate Yourself Facebook group. And she asked particularly, how do we find our voice once we leave a religion that's so patriarchal? And this is such a great question because I think all of us can relate, regardless of gender. I think all of us who come from high-demand religion have learned that in some instances our voice doesn't matter and that there are parts of ourselves that are better kept silent. And I think sometimes that follows us even after we've left religion and we find ourselves um, feeling afraid or just uncomfortable sharing parts of ourselves that we believe won't be well accepted by the group. So today what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about some possible reasons why we might have begun silencing ourselves. We're going to talk about how to address the underlying subconscious beliefs and fears that might be keeping us quiet and how to begin hearing and using our voice to create a life that feels less frustrating and more fulfilling. So today's episode applies to anyone, regardless of gender, you know, male, female, non-binary, the whole human experience. But today I am going to be looking through the lens of women because studies have found that in the workplace, which is where most of the studies have been done, that women particularly struggle to speak up even when it is their area of expertise, even when they're the most educated on the topic in the room, even when what they have to say would be the authority on the topic. Women, up to 45% of women in that specific position that I was just telling you about, struggle to speak up in a board meeting or a group of peers. So we're going to talk about that today, and then we're going to end up November talking about fragile femininity and masculinity with my husband, Kevin, because patriarchy doesn't just negatively affect women. It negatively impacts all humans, even those who have privilege in the system. And I think that's such an important discussion for us to have as we are ending our discussion, at least for now, on patriarchy and Christianity. Now, before we go any further in the episode, I want to say a huge thank you for all the five-star ratings, the comments, and the feedback, both those of you who are really affirming and tell me how much this means to you, as well as the ones that are correcting. I've had people correct my language. I appreciate it. The people who have corrected my understanding and my thinking, who've pushed back on ideas, who have given me a different point of view. I love it. Thank you. There are a few comments I don't love simply because they aren't constructive in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I've had a few comments that have come in and just told me I'm a Satan-worshipping bitch. That's cool. I mean, you're allowed to have that opinion. So if you're listening through an episode and and thinking about wanting to send one of those comments, I'm probably going to ignore it. I'm not going to comment back to you. But even if you highly disagree, find my information offensive, and really don't like the way I'm speaking, I love your feedback. 
because when you come back to me and you say, I don't like this, this is offensive, it allows us to have a conversation and I learn from it and I hope you do too. So thank you for all of the comments, except the bitch ones. Thank you for all of the comments and all the times you've shared the podcast with your friends. I can't tell you how many times I get messages from your friends saying, my friend so-and-so shared this with me and I've now listened to 15 episodes and it's really making a difference. Like that is the pinnacle of just joy for me. This year, the podcast grew from an average listenership of 500 to 800 per episode at the end of 2021. This time last year, we had 500 to 800 people listening per week. And I was over the moon and felt just so much joy. But it's grown to 3,000 to 5,000 per episode, with some episodes even reaching upwards of 8,000 people in 2022. I'm like tearing up a little. This is incredible. And it's because of you and anywhere from 3,000 to 8,000 people per week that are learning to understand their lived experience, give themselves kindness, heal their trauma, and show up in the world in ways that light them up. Y'all, that is a lot of people healing. Imagine the generational ripples that will come from this movement because of what we're doing together. I get excited shivers and obviously tears too. I'm over here crying when I think about it. I also have a huge ask of you for this upcoming year. I want to see if we can double those numbers. I'd love to end the season next year with 6,000 to 10,000 people tuning in regularly each week. And I'd love to have episodes that have 16 to 20,000 because the discussion is so rich. Together, I know we can make it happen. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart. You have no idea how much joy being able to create this podcast and be a part of all of your lives means to me. I have never felt so lucky in my life. I also before we go any further, want to give you a bias warning. I can't help but talk about these issues that affect women without looking through the lens of being a woman myself. I don't speak for all women. I speak from my own experience influenced by research that has attempted to understand the collective female experience, but I still have bias. All of us have bias. None of us are bias-free, and a lot of times that bias is subconscious. I try to be as conscious as possible of my bias and push back against it, but I know without a doubt it is still there. I haven't yet learned how to step outside of the lens of being raised female to better understand the male experience. And yet, even with my bias, my voice still matters. I hope as you learn to use your voice, you'll realize you'll use it imperfectly with bias perhaps with limited understanding, perhaps twinged with trauma, and yet it is so valuable to the discussion at large. Your experience shared helps all of us understand the human experience in general and make a better world for us all. So please listen to your own voice as you listen to this podcast. Keep what feels valuable to you and leave what doesn't. And please Share your own ideas, experience, and feelings with us at the Emancipate Yourself Facebook page. If you've been struggling to acknowledge and use your voice, start there where it is welcome. We want to hear 
what you have to say. As you use your voice in places where it's welcome, it gets stronger. It makes it easier to use it in the society at large where it might not always be welcome. So with that said, let's hop in. How did we lose our voice in the first place? So in patriarchal society, there's a clear distinction between male and female roles, and never the twain shall mix. You're either masculine or you're feminine. Do you hear the dichotomy that we're always talking about? Men and women both get ridiculed and punished when their behavior, speech, career choices, grooming, sexual lives, or relationship choices fall outside of these socially created quote-unquote norms. And I put norms in quotes because these are social constructs. We are socialized to behave differently. I love what Dr. Tehu Smith, who is a licensed family therapist and an adjunct professor of psychology at Pepperdine, they say gender dichotomies are much more a reflection of social programming than biological nature. And I think for a long time, we've had sort of a biological view of gender that boys are naturally the way they are and girls are naturally the way they are, that it's something in our genetics. And there's definitely a genetic component. But as Dr. Smith says, they're much more a reflection of social programming than it is the genetic differences between the sexes. And there are other psychologists that say that gender is a social construct itself, that aside from a few key differences in anatomy, that gender doesn't exist. So that's a conversation that's on the table right now as well, is that gender was made up. Gender is, it doesn't exist. I haven't fully looked into that, but it's something to like get curious about, right? Is that our experience? Does that resonate? Does that make sense? And can we have conversations about that? So I'm excited to look into that more. So... What this means is that if you identify as a man, you are likely expected to adhere to masculine gender norms. And I want you to stop the podcast for a minute and notice what ideas come to mind for you when you think of what it means to be a man. Go ahead, pause, think for a minute, and then come back. So while you may have come up with different terms, stereotypically, men in our society are expected to be strong, powerful, leaders, competitive, stoic, independent, intelligent, ambitious, outspoken, and even in some circles, aggressive and dominant. Physically, men are expected to be tall, muscular, and rugged. And often, men are expected to be sexually virile, even in high-demand religion. Like, I want you to think about your church experience. On the one hand, men were told to abstain from sexual activity, but there was also that understanding that they're going to struggle with their sexual urges a lot because of how manly they are. This usually gives them a lot of empathy and understanding and honestly slaps on the wrist when they deserve calls to the police when they quote unquote slip up. So the whole boys will be boys, men will be men sort of understanding that aggressiveness, that dominance, and that um, sexual activity are just kind of baked into the DNA. Now, 
I'm sharing this upcoming story with permission from Kevin, but really what comes up to me, this idea of being sexually virile. So Kevin and I, we went through 10 years of infertility, and I knew it was really difficult for me, but Kevin really didn't talk about his experience with infertility very much until 10 years after we started trying, I got pregnant with our youngest son. And I still remember being at the doctor, finding out we were pregnant, that it was a viable pregnancy. And Kevin stated he finally felt like a quote unquote real man. He was like, I'm a real man. (laughs) I've done it. I've impregnated someone. So subconsciously, not being able to impregnate me, even though our infertility was likely at least partly my issue, it made him feel like less of a man that we couldn't get pregnant. He felt like he was failing as a man because he couldn't put a baby in my belly. And I'm wondering if you had experiences like that or the people that you love who identify as men, did they have experiences like that? Were there certain things they had to performatively do to be men? What did that look like? Now I want you to take a moment and ask yourself what a respectable woman brings to mind and what were you taught about being a good girl? So when you think of the ideal woman or the uh, respectable good girl, what comes up? Go ahead and pause. Give yourself some time to think and think about all the traits that come up for you. The respectable woman or good girl stereotype kind of sounds like this. So women in our society are socialized in ways that put relationships before individual wants and needs. In fact, we receive lots of praise when we put other people's feelings, wants, and needs first and our own last. We are really elevated and put on a pedestal when we give and give and give and give and don't pay attention to our own needs. Being a good girl in a society run by white evangelical and often old men often looks like being quiet, submissive to authority. Ugh, that one made me shiver a little bit because I still remember deferring to men in suits in particular because in the Mormon church, the male authorities, the bishop, the stake president, all the general authorities, they would wear suits. And so men in suits, I was conditioned to stay quieter around them and to listen more carefully to what they had to say, especially if they use that general authority voice. You know what I'm talking about. So I had to really consciously reframe the idea that a man in a suit naturally knew more than I did. Or that a man in a suit naturally had more authority than I do. And I have pissed off several people by not naturally kowtowing to men in suits anymore. In fact, I actually just wrote out uh, the letter that I will send to the church if I'm ever called to a church disciplinary council. And... um, It actually made me feel really empowered. That was something I was feeling a little anxious about. Like, if I ever get a letter from the church disciplinary council to, you know, be disfellowshipped or excommunicated because of the work I'm doing here on the podcast and because of the public speaking and the events that I attend, 
what would I say and what would I do? And at first I thought that I would show up and argue my case, but I realized that that still identifies them as people in a place of power over me and I no longer give them that power. I gave them that power for 37 years because I was conditioned to, but they hold no real power over my life. Like They have the power to slander my name. They have the power to kick me out of their good old boys club. They have the power to, you know, refuse me rights to enter, you know, their temple, which I'm not going to anyway. So, you know, they have the the right to to null and void any magical rites of passage that I went through as a child and a young adult. But they have no real power over my life. And they hold no authority with my connection to the divine. And so once I got to that point, I realized, why would I show up to a tribunal of these men? Why would I even pretend that they have some sort of authority to hold a tribunal in the first place. And so what I did is I wrote out this letter from that place of understanding. Um, But I think what really gets me is even a 12-year-old in a suit in Mormonism has more authority in the church than his own mother. And men are often considered authorities, even if you as a woman have an earned degree, And you've done extensive research in a certain field and the man has not. A good girl is also expected to be willing to do invisible work tirelessly and happily. I've often read about the double bind for women. And in today's society, we're expected to do all of the work at home that 1950s women did. In many instances, I'm not saying in all households. I live in a household where we share labor pretty evenly. And we're still in discussions about what feels fair and what doesn't feel fair. And, you know, I live with all men. And so it's a discussion that we have a lot because I'm undoing my own internalized misogyny and my own internalized tapes about what's expected of a woman and what makes me a good person. And they're undoing societal expectations for men. So, you know, men when they step up to do tasks, are often praised for showing up, especially if it's housework. And they get praised a lot. And women, they don't get praised if they show up and do a task. It's just expected. But if they don't show up and do a task, they often get punished. And this happens in the workplace. This happens in organizations, but it also happens at home. And it's been something that we've been recognizing and fighting within our own home for several years now. And it's gotten a lot better. While you may have a much more egalitarian home, this might be a conversation to have with your significant other. Like, how do you really feel? Who, like, do you feel like the workload is fair? And you might feel like it's fair, but maybe they don't. And so sometimes we'll reach an agreement and we'll try it on for a while and it feels better, but then one or both of us starts to feel a little like, oh, this is unfair or I'm carrying more of the load. And just sitting down, sometimes we sit down and talk about it and I'm just not aware of the invisible work that he's doing or he's not aware of the invisible work that I'm doing. So we both sit down, we talk it out 
And sometimes we just come to the conclusion, oh, I think actually our roles are pretty equal. I just wasn't aware you were doing all of this. And he wasn't aware I was doing all of that. So please, if you feel safe with your significant other, sit down and talk about your experience with work and the tasks that you're doing, especially if you feel like it is not equal. And come at it from a place of, hey, I just want to share my experience with you and I'd like to find solutions. Not like you're not pulling your load. That doesn't go over very well. If we come at it from, you're not pulling your load, I do everything, you do nothing, shame goes up, people's defenses go up, they don't hear anything we have to say. So there's a way to be clear and kind, to speak our needs while also recognizing that the other person is a human being with feelings. So being able to say, hey, I feel overwhelmed and I'm starting to feel resentful because of the workload I'm carrying and I could really use your help to help me problem solve and figure out how we're going to you know, address this situation because I don't want to continue like this allows it to be something that people can collaborate with you on instead of a frontal attack. But yeah, good women or good girls are expected to be like busy in the workplace, then come home and do all of the house chores. So they're expected to be the 1950s wife at home, does all the cooking, cleaning, uh, child rearing, but they're also, because of the feminist movement, which has been amazing and has given us so many rights, but instead of it equaling out what women are expected to do at home societally, not individually in each household, but societally, In general, women are still expected and held responsible for the way their children turn out, for the way their home is kept, for what food their kids eat, and then on top of that are expected to kill it in the workplace too and be super successful over there too. It really is a catch-22 and we do expect a lot more from mothers today. There have been studies that have been done that show mom exhaustion in the 2000s versus the 1950s. In the 1950s, moms were expected to provide shelter, food, and like safety supervision. But today's mothers are expected to be much, much more emotionally and mentally involved, which is a good thing, but is exhausting because there's not enough time and energy for women to do all the things that are put on their plate. There's this idea that we're supposed to be super moms. In fact, there was a back-to-school commercial that made me cringe all the time. I think it was Walgreens or something that was like, if you're a super mom, and it was almost being said like, this is the ideal. I'm a super mom, and I do blah, 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 blah. And she listed off this whole list of all the things she was doing. And being a person who has tried to do all the things in the past, I was like exhausted and anxious listening to this commercial And realizing that subconsciously people were picking up the idea of this is who I'm supposed to be as a woman. I'm supposed to be the soccer mom that brings all the snacks that, you know, packs the perfectly like cookie cuttered out little lunch boxes and like is the fun mom that has all the friends over it. Like, I don't even remember everything this person listed out, but she kept using the term super mom. And I think that's often something that is expected of women subconsciously. 
And there's also this idea that if we are this superwoman, that we never need to rest, we never feel angry or resentful, we never have to clarify our boundaries, and we might not have boundaries at all. We never need to engage in conflict resolution and that we're nice and polite no matter how rudely or offensively the other person is behaving. We're not allowed to lose our shit. Because that's not what good girls do. Good girls don't lose their temper. Good girls don't feel angry in the first place. Like you're allowed to speak up, but there's this very narrow place in the middle where it's acceptable to speak. It's very strange. It's so restrictive. And then, of course, we've got the beauty standards. So respectable women are beautiful if they can help it. And if they can't be beautiful by conventional standards currently set by the patriarchy, then they make up for it by being as helpful as possible. Women are often valued first for their attractiveness and second for the supportive work they do. Dating studies have found that men in our society want women who are smart and successful, but they often veer away from dating women they perceive as smarter and more successful themselves. So the ideal woman in terms of intelligence and career success is relative to the man she is to be coupled with. (sighs) And even the idea that she should be coupled is a part of the patriarchal idea of a respectable woman because a respectable woman is married and has kids. It's the idea that a woman's worth is is in comparison to the man she's with is just kind of makes my blood boil a little bit. So it makes sense if you were socialized as a traditional female in our society that you quit using your voice. You got praise and even love for being quiet, keeping your opinions and difficult emotions to yourself, for caretaking others over your own needs and submitting to authority. And this was all reinforced because you watched the important women in your life receive praise and love for putting themselves last to care for spouses, children, grandchildren, extended family, friends, and church members. They didn't care for others alongside themselves. They often sacrificed themselves to physically and emotionally support others. And these are the women you likely grew up hearing elevated as things like angel mothers during sermons and in Mother's Day greetings as you watch them struggle with anxiety, depression, and physical symptoms of emotional trauma. This really is, for many women, generational trauma. This learned voicelessness was modeled for us and it was praised by society, not just men. When I say the patriarchy, I am not pointing the finger at men and saying, you guys have been oppressing us. Women have been oppressing themselves and each other right alongside everyone else. This is not a man problem. This is a society problem. Internalized misogyny is a thing. When we talk about fragile femininity, we're going to talk about how fragility in women kind of makes this need to control other women's expression of femininity kind of come to the forefront. So it is not just men oppressing women. That is not how patriarchy works. Honestly, if that was the way how patriarchy worked, we would probably have solved it by now. But it is other women also 
oppressing other women, slut-shaming other women, mom-shaming other women, body-shaming other women, we are just as guilty of perpetuating the patriarchy on each other because internally we're doing it to ourselves. So we'll talk about more of that in the upcoming weeks. Now, some of the reasons you may have a hard time speaking up are going to vary from person to person, but here are some questions to ask yourself to gain more insight into your own lived experience. And I want you to remember, guys, that nothing that comes up is bad. Even if your thoughts, beliefs, and behavior aren't lining up with what you hope to have in life, those things aren't bad. They're adaptive behaviors that are trying to protect you from perceived hurt based on things you've experienced in your past. So invite those things to your inner conversation with compassion and curiosity. And if you can manage it, which you'll get there, if you're just beginning your journey, this might be harder. But as you've processed some of this, you may get to a place even where you can extend some gratitude to these things in your life that may be causing you grief now, but have provided you protection and safety at least at some point in your past. So here are the questions to ask yourself and feel free to pause between questions or whenever it suits you. Take some time and really think these through and listen to your own voice. What benefits do you get from staying silent? And the answers to these questions might not come up all at once. This might be something that you write out and stick on your fridge and just look at it and notice what comes up throughout the day as you're checking in with yourself. What benefits do I get from staying silent? Maybe you don't have to confront your difficult emotions. Maybe you don't have to worry about being abandoned. Maybe you don't have to worry about having conflict conversations. Maybe you don't have to clarify your boundaries. Maybe you don't have to look directly at a problem. Maybe you get praise. Maybe you get love and attention. Maybe you like people calling you a superhero, even though you also secretly feel resentful. That was definitely one for me. I stayed silent because people thought I was pretty amazing when I was doing all the things for other people and silencing my own needs. When I wasn't setting boundaries, I got all kinds of accolades. And I also, when I was in high demand religion, because I did that, got all kinds of callings. So I was the yes girl and you could rely on me and I got things done and I was competent and confident and I socialized well with other people. So because I caretaked and I did all of those things and I was able to juggle all of that and be a mom, I got praised constantly, particularly by men, but also by women, and I got elevated to positions of power by men. So living in a patriarchal society that was made even more patriarchal in high-demand religion, self-silencing brought me a lot of benefits, and it helped me perform better and gain more power in a society run by men that had these expectations of me as a woman. 
So those were the benefits I had to face of being silent. Being silent in some ways had brought me power. It gave me control. And it also brought me lots of praise and validation, which was necessary for my fragile sense of self-worth. The second question, when you think about speaking up, what fears rise to the surface? What is the risk of using your voice? The most common ones that come up for people are usually a fear of rejection or abandonment. Um, But sometimes it's physical violence. Sometimes it's a loss of a job. Sometimes it's divorce. Sometimes it's, you know, losing access to your kids or your family. So there's a lot of fear that often comes up with using our voice. And the third one, do you feel confident you could care for yourself and be physically, mentally, and emotionally okay if the thing you're afraid of were to happen? For many of us, when we're afraid of being rejected or abandoned, like I remember realizing that I was going to have to speak my truth at church. I no longer wanted to be in my church position. It entailed me teaching other women um, in several different wards, and I needed to say things that didn't resonate with me anymore, and that felt disingenuous. I remember telling my husband that to continue in that calling would feel like uh, sacrificing my integrity on the altar of Mormonism. Like, that's how it felt to me, that I would be putting my integrity on the altar and kind of performing in Abraham, right? Like, pulling out my knife and getting ready to kill it. And at least that's how it looked in my mind's eye. Maybe a little dramatic. Like, as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, that's kind of dramatic. But that's like, that was the visual in my head. I was like taking this piece of myself and sacrificing it and, you know, watching it like ooze all over the altar. And I couldn't do that anymore. And I remember realizing like the big fear that came up as I knew I was going to have to talk to some of the higher male authorities in our area that I was going to have to tell them that I could no longer occupy the position And I knew they were going to ask me why. And I knew that I was going to have to tell them that I needed to step away from the church. And I instinctively knew that it was going to take away what I was getting, which was the power and status. Um, It was going to take away the trust that these male leaders had in my abilities. And that even if I ever did come back which I was leaving open as a possibility. It is no longer a possibility. I really can't imagine anything that would happen that would bring me back. But even if I did come back, that I would always be in doubt, in question, that I would never be put into the positions of responsibility that I had been previously. And I knew there was a very real possibility I could be rejected. So... I remember sitting there and being like, if I lose my community and possibly even my family, if I lose my community, who will be my community? And that's a difficult thing we all have to do with our fears is what will I do to care for myself if the thing I'm afraid of happens? 
So if you're still listening to this episode, the chances are that you're aware that your silence is hurting you and you probably feel some anger, resentment, frustration, maybe even a little helplessness because there are things in your life you could say, but you haven't been able to, and it's not getting better on its own. No amount of verbal or facial hints is making a difference with the person you're interacting with or the organization. But what you may not be aware of is how your silence has been helping you feel safe and in control. So sometimes we find it hard to change our behavior because we aren't ready to give up the benefits we're getting from our behavior. Your pattern of staying silent is no different. So give yourself some time. So let's go back to that first question. Give yourself some time to get curious about what you might be getting from remaining silent. Then when you're ready, so start with that first question first. Then when you're ready, work with your fear about what would happen if you were to speak your mind. And this is how I work with my fear. So let your fear tell you all about what it's worried about. So basically give fear a pen and paper and let it pour everything out that it's afraid of. Or you can voice record it if you are writing adverse or if you do a lot of your good thinking in the car like I do. And I set a time limit with my fear. I say, okay, you have a 10-minute window. I set office hours with uncomfortable emotions that I am likely to get stuck in or I'm afraid I'll get stuck in. So like when I was grieving leaving the church, I really got to a point where I didn't like just sitting in the grief all the time. It felt exhausting. And so I would set office hours for it. So I would say, okay, I get 30 minutes at the end of the day. And anytime the grief would come up, I would say, I hear you and I see you. Remember, come see me at eight. You can do that with your emotions. You can say, you know what, fear, I can tell that you're afraid of this. So I'm going to give you 10 minutes and we're going to hear everything you have to say. You can set an appointment with it. You can say, you know, if it pops up at a time when you don't want to feel it and you don't want to ruminate ruminate on it because it's unproductive or it's, you know, distracting you from other things you need to do, then you can say, I see you and I want to hear you. Come and see me again. I will make time for you at 8 p.m. tonight or I will make time for you at 7 a.m. this morning or over my lunch break and I will be there and ready to listen. And you're going to get 10 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it is. And I'm going to let myself fully immerse in your experience and hear what you have to say. And we will, you know, problem solve as best we can in that time. And then if you need to see me again, we can make another appointment. It is okay to do that. So it is okay to a lot time, especially if you have what I call addictive emotions. So like depression for me was a very addictive emotion. I'm still not entirely sure what I was getting from my clinical depression, but for me, it felt scary to exist outside of depression after being in it for a while. And so once I started getting better at identifying emotions and once I got better at trusting myself and my body got I guess, more trusting of me that I actually would pay attention to it and listen to it. I got to a place where depression would rise up. Often when I was feeling too happy, like quote unquote too happy as if there is such a thing, but happiness and joy are considered one of the most vulnerable emotions that we experience as humans because if we're happy or joyful about something, it's often because we have something in our life that 
there's also a fear that we'll lose. And so when we're feeling this rush of joy, we often feel this immediate fear of loss, which is why we, you know, sometimes we'll be looking at our baby sleeping and feel just this rush of love and happiness and joy only to be replaced by like a fear of them dying in their sleep or something. So we kind of, as Brene Brown says, we kind of dress rehearse for the worst as a way to protect ourselves from the loss of experiencing joy. So that would happen to me. I would feel depression come up and this sense of like almost like worthlessness or like sadness or like a reminder that I wasn't worthy of the joy. It would come up in the middle of the joy and I would have to say, hey, I you obviously have something to say. Right now it's Joy's turn. Like I'm sure what you have to say is important and I want to hear it. I will talk to you in two hours. Like in two hours and I would actually set an appointment as if I was making an appointment with a friend. I'm like, I know you're trying to keep me safe. I know that there is something that you're worried about here. I will listen to you at, you know, 2 p.m. or whatever. And I would give it, you know, 10 minutes to say what it needed to say and to get curious with it. And every time it would come up while I was there with the joy thing, I would say, okay, no, I remember two o'clock. Right now I'm present in this emotion. And I practiced that. And it was awful at first. And I was not very good at it at first. But you can start practicing if you have an emotion that tends to pop up a lot and and tends to be uh, your comfort zone or a little bit addictive, something that you find yourself kind of instinctually going to, you can start to train it to just show up at certain times. And at least for me, over time, it kind of quit coming around as often. Now, not so much this year. This year, it has knocked on my door a little bit more, and I've had to spend a little bit more time with... um kind of creeping depression. There has been a little bit that has come up, but I've even used that this year to say, okay, I can tell that you're there and you have something to say and it's probably important and will help my well-being. So how about we talk about it tonight around seven o'clock? That'll give me time to hear you and then like work up some endorphins, working out or, you know, reading a good book or something that'll allow me to sleep after. So really working with that. And depression had a lot to say, a lot of really beneficial things I needed to hear this year. Depression is not the enemy. Depression is trying to tell you where you're overworked, where there are emotions that you stuffed without realizing it, where things need to change, where you have expectations perhaps that I have expectations from before the pandemic of how I should show up in the world. And I'm no longer that person since the pandemic. And I don't want to be that person, but I had to like listen to that so I could correct those things. And I'll be making those adjustments in 2023. And I'm actually really excited about it. So go ahead and give it 10 minutes to go wild. Let your fear come out and play for 10 minutes. Let it say everything it needs to say in 10 minutes. You may have fear that's like my depression that could go on for hours. Just give it an office window. Tell me whatever you can for 10 minutes today. We'll deal with what comes up. And if you have more to say, you can schedule another appointment with me and I will let you say whatever you need to say then. And we'll keep going until you feel like you have fully expressed yourself fear. Okay. I do talk to my emotions like they're people because it helps me separate myself from my emotions. So when depression comes up, I say, oh, depression, my old friend, I haven't seen you in a while. 
you obviously have something to say. Tell you what, right now I'm researching for a podcast, but I have some availability tonight at 5 p.m. You want to talk then? And so I'll physically pen them in to my cell phone calendar. So I remember to actually check back in with myself and speak to this part of myself that is depressed. Fear plays a valid role too. It's trying to make sure you see any potential harm ahead and it's trying to keep you safe. It's not trying to keep you small. I know there are a lot of motivational speakers out there that say, ignore your fear, feel the fear and do it anyway. Yes, feel the fear and do it anyway while listening to what it's trying to show you that's coming up ahead, that it's worried you might not have paid attention to adequately enough. Fear only keeps you small when you try to ignore it and you don't make a plan with it. So it distracts you and you feel uncomfortable when you feel afraid and you're not willing to really listen to it so you don't make a plan. So subconsciously, you know you're unprepared for whatever's coming up ahead. So give fear a chance to speak and then make a plan with it. And the next you feel confident enough to care for yourself physically, mentally, and emotionally if the thing fear is afraid of happens. So if you speak up, will you likely be physically safe? That is a valid fear. Like if I speak up to someone in my life and they might physically attack me, fear has a valid point. They're like, don't step into a boxing ring without your boxing gloves and without your headgear. Do not do that. Don't show up to a gunfight with a knife. Isn't that something I think my grandpa used to say? Yeah, don't show up to a gunfight with a knife. That's what your fear is saying. It's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, before you speak up, are we going to be physically safe here? And if not, what do we do? If you're not going to be physically safe, your fear has a valid point. It says you could experience physical harm from opening your mouth. This likely means you're not in a safe living or working situation. So I want you, if this is your situation, quietly brainstorm who you might turn to for support and contemplate what you might need to do to care for yourself if you need to leave this situation. And this may take a lot of brainstorming. I know there are people who listen to this who are teenagers and who still live with very devout parents. Physically safe could also be being kicked out and being homeless. I talked to several teens online who have been kicked out of their parents' homes or are afraid that they'll be kicked out of their parents' homes without any chance to gather their stuff and without any place to go. And so we talk through how do we keep them physically safe before they speak up? Or is it better if they don't speak up, wait until they leave, even though that might be two or three years of torture having to live inauthentically, would meeting their physical needs, does that feel better to them? And then they can speak their truth later. Like, what feels the safest to you? Physical safety is on the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs for a reason. Before we can be all self-actualized, before we can have love and belonging, before we can speak our truth, we need to feel like our basic physical needs are met and that we are safe from, you know, being physically hurt or killed. 
So brainstorm. What resources are available to you? If you need to communicate, is there someone who can mediate? Do you have a place to go? Could you communicate in writing instead of face-to-face? Would that be physically safer? And don't hesitate to brainstorm with a trusted friend if you're so far into fight, flight, fawn, or freeze that you can't see solutions. Because remember, our executive functioning brain goes offline when we're in fight, flight, or freeze. It takes way too much processing time. And so our blood rushes to our limbs and we just use basic primitive functions inside our brain when we're in fight, flight, or freeze. So if you're in that place, which if you feel like you're physically threatened, if you speak your truth, then you're likely in that place, then it may be difficult for you to brainstorm. So bring somebody in who can brainstorm with you. It'll help you feel calmer because you're going to have that connection with another person, which kind of gets us up into that next step of our brain. So we've got the primitive lizard brain. Then the mammalian brain is encases that. That's the place where we connect with other people. And even just connecting with other people can help us feel safer. And as we feel safer, it allows us to start thinking more clearly. Now, if you speak up and the thing you fear happens, will you be able to mentally and emotionally care for yourself? Many of my clients sit with this before deciding to tell family members about their deconstruction. For many, their worst fear is they'll be rejected and shunned by family members or their whole community, like I was talking about earlier. I told you that I started making connections and making community and family for myself outside of church before I spoke up. So I started going to Zumba. I went to meetup.com. So if you're looking for new communities, I went to meetups.com and I typed in my interests as gardening, dancing, community service. Um, I'm trying to think. I put in like 10 different things and all the groups in my community that had to do with that. I think board games was one of the things I put. Reading was another one. Book clubs. I put all of those things in my meetups profile and then it brought up all the clubs and groups that meet regularly in my area and I started attending those and making friends. I also became a Zumba instructor during that time because that gave me more of an in with the Zumba community. I got to know more people, um, and it really helped me kind of create family for myself outside of the church before I spoke the words that were in my heart, which is, I gotta peace out. I gotta leave because this is no longer healthy for me. If you're worried about losing community, brainstorm. What could I do to create at least a small community? Even a couple of people can make a huge difference if that's one of your big fears. And make sure that you have the ability to meet your needs emotionally and mentally. Also, the Reddit community. So there's a huge ex-Mormon Reddit community. There's a huge ex-Christian Reddit community. There are communities all over online where you can get together and you can like start connecting with people so that you feel less alone. Now, I want you to know that I will also be creating a coaching community. So if you're looking to make deep connections, if you want personalized help with some of the questions and problems and difficulties that you're facing as you're going through religious transition, 
keep an eye out because in 2023, I'm going to be offering group coaching every other week and I'm going to be offering a monthly workshop on a specific topic that the community has said that they would like to hear more about. And I will be keeping the price as low as possible so that it is accessible to as many people as possible. So please, if group coaching is something that you would like to have access to or workshops, as well as other special content that I have not yet fully conceptualized yet, but there will be for sure group coaching and um a workshop every month and I would love to see you there. So stay tuned for that. You guys are getting the very first inklings of what's coming in 2023 and I'm really excited. You can also get a therapist or coach if you need community. And I can't tell you how wonderful it is, like the best, to pay a professional whose sole purpose is to sit and really listen to you, mirror what you're saying and implying back to you and validate your experience and help you find solutions that fit for you especially if you were socialized to put yourself last and care for others' emotional needs in a relationship. Like for me, it was so liberating to talk with a therapist where I was there to be cared for instead of to caretake. It can be a huge step forward in breaking codependency and people-pleasing cycles. I'm currently taking new one-to-one clients as well for January of 2023. So if you're resonating with this podcast and you would like personalized support with anything that I've talked about on this podcast, please contact me on social media or you can send me an email, terry at Emancipated Coaching. All of those links are in the show notes. I have currently four spots open for new clients in the new year, and I never have more than 10 clients at a time so that everyone gets the attention and support that they deserve. So if that's something that you're like, oh, I would love that, I would love to talk with you. And we're bringing on new coaches in 2023 as well. And I'll be introducing them on the podcast. They will be coming and podcasting with me regularly. And you can decide if they're a good fit for you as well. So Emancipated Coaching is growing in 2023. And I'm so, so excited. Oh, you know what? There is so much more I could share about this topic Um, perhaps what I will do is another little mini episode for next week where we can talk about like small steps forward, how we can start speaking up because there's lots of different discussions that are coming from the workplace in particular. Most of our studies on, um, self-silencing, on feeling voiceless and on like the proactive steps we can start taking to share our voice are really found from workplace studies. We will talk about that. We're, I'll bring up Adam Galinsky's work. Um, he talks about low power double binds and how to start giving ourselves more power so that we do feel safer to speak up. But I've already been talking for a long time and I want to make this digestible. So we will stop there. Ask yourself the three questions. Get curious with what you're getting from staying silent. What fear is coming up? and how you would emotionally, mentally, and physically care for yourself if the fear were to happen. That alone right there is going to give you a lot more power, a lot more understanding, and give you those tiny steps forward to begin to use your voice. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week, and then Kevin and I will come at you with uh, fragile femininity and masculinity. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next Sunday.